John's record of the events on Easter night are reminiscent of the events at the dawn of creation. For John tells us Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whereas in the book of Genesis we read how God fashioned us from the dust of the earth and then breathe into our nostrils the breath of life. There are those, of course, who maintain that this uh, divinity uh, has been undimmed in spite of the years and of our sins, that in reality we are just as much uh, children to God as we were in the beginning. But such is not biblical religion. Biblical religion tells us that something dreadful happened in the garden way back in the beginning when God had told his new creation that they were to live in responsible relationship to himself. If they disobeyed and ate the forbidden fruit, they would die. They would die a physical death, but more than that and before that, they would die a spiritual death. And, of course, we know that they disobeyed. We also know that by the time of the prophet Ezekiel, God was saying to his prophet, Prophesy to the four winds and tell them to blow, to breathe upon the slain that they may live. We also know by the time of the apostle Paul, we read that all who are led by the Spirit of God or the children of God. And if someone does not have the Spirit of Jesus, he is none of his. Therefore, we see the Spirit as the recreation of life, of, of setting life as it was meant to be by God, of awakening someone from death and and bringing them to life again. It is, therefore, very instructive that as God had breathed the breath of life into us in the beginning, now after our fall and the redemptive death of Jesus Christ in his resurrection, he makes himself available to breathe that recreating life into the lives of his whole church as they gathered there in that upper room long ago. It was and is a necessary in-breathing to equip the church for its work. Now, some people talk about uh, being a Christian and others say, I'm a spirit-filled Christian. And many times people who just think of themselves as Christian get a little bit scary about being a, a spirit-filled Christian. Isn't it wonderful that in, in John's uh, story of the giving of the Holy Spirit, he makes it very plain that this is none other than the risen Christ giving himself to be with and within his followers forever. That the Holy Spirit is Jesus, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. 
By the time we come to Pentecost with its wind, which means spirit, and fire, it, it seems a little bit more mysterious. It seemed as natural and normal as anything that the risen Christ meeting here with his frightened disciples should give them himself to be with them and in them forever. It's Jesus. That's who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is Jesus. And he offers himself to us that we might, as his church, do our work. His earnest desire for his church is that even as the Father has sent him, he might send us. That we might be sent on the same errands into the world which sent Jesus Christ. Now, immediately, when you start to work out the implications of being uh, like Christ in the world, you feel overmatched for the task. You feel like you need a little extra help. It's kind of like when the Jeff Davis High Yellow Jackets, on which team I had the fortune or good fortune or misfortune to play for four years. Like when the our little team went to play Valdosta High School, which uh, won more uh, national high school championships, I suppose, than anybody around. And when we'd start to play those folk, I, I remember, I shared it with you, I remember how the coach would always make the same little speech. He'd say, now, boys, remember one thing. They put on their britches just like you do, one leg at a time. And everybody knew when we heard that we were about to get trounced. <laughs> I mean, we were going to be run off the field. Sure, they put on their britches just like we did. But we knew that's where the similarity ended. It was all over after that. Well, you think about those disciples to whom it was said, I, I want to send you just as God sent me. And they felt overmatched. I think about that cute little car my father-in-law bought once. Had all the goodies, every accessory you could imagine. We took it and went fishing. Had a, had a big heavy boat. We were pulling that boat behind us and we went down to the river and, and went down one of those concrete inclines to let the boat slide off the trailer into the, into the river, except you have to pull the car up to make it slide off the trailer. We, hundreds of people standing around there, big landing, waiting for us to get our boat unloaded. The only problem was that car didn't have enough power to pull the trailer out from under the boat. It's terribly embarrassing. <laughs> My father-in-law, who knew I was going to Atlanta to go back to school the next day, gave me the keys and said, you drive this car. And then he gave me a check. And he said, don't bring that car back. <laughs> he said, get me a trained billy goat if you have to, but don't bring that car back. It's overloaded and underpowered. Now that's how those disciples felt. Overloaded and underpowered. And that's always a problem for the church until it's received the in-breathing of the risen Christ. Overloaded and, and underpowered. 
I, I used to think when, when people gave their excuses for not being disciples in the church, in terms of their stewardship, in terms of their willingness to take a responsibility to teach, to work, to visit, to do the innumerable things required to make the church go. I used to think when people wouldn't do those things, it was because they were just plain unwilling. I have a new view of that now. I think many times when they say, I can't do it, they mean exactly that. I can't do it. I think they do not have power over misplaced priorities. I think they do not have discipline over their lives. I do not think they have the perseverance. I do not think they have the, the depth of character to take a tough job and pull it off. I think they're right. They cannot do it. I think we have been called to be the light of the world, but we don't have enough oil in our lamps. We say we can't, and within ourselves, we cannot. Maybe we've lost the message of that old picture that used to hang in our living rooms. It wasn't in ours, but I've seen it many times. I don't remember the name of it exactly. Maybe it was the helper, something like that. It was the strong old man. You remember seeing it. He's rowing that boat across uh, the choppy waters. Strong and secure, he's rowing that boat. And there in his lap, maybe a grandchild, I don't know, a little child, with his pudgy hands put on top of those callous, strong hands. And, and it's the helper, he's, he's helping. In reality, we know where the strength is, don't we? Maybe... When we run out of steam, it's because we're, we're paddling our own canoe. We're, we're operating on our own strength. We're, we're, we're just trying to, to play bootstrap Christianity. And, and that's why we can't hold out. And that's why we can't do the tough things. That works in other religions as far as it goes. You take the other great world religions and, and they look at their teachers and their founders, and they are grateful to them. Uh, they take their flowers to their graves, and they, and, and they thank their God for that founder. But is, insofar as that teacher or founder being absent, it doesn't make one iota of difference to how they live their religion. But if you take our teacher away from his teachings... You've stripped it bare. It becomes the driest, the, the dullest, the most demanding uh, set of teachings you have ever seen in your life. And, and it won't work because you can't take away our teacher from his teachings. We don't believe in a set of teachings. We put our faith in Christ, a living indwelling Savior. Just last week I heard a new Christian give his testimony. And, and toward the end of his marvelous testimony, he said, Now that I know Jesus Christ as my Savior, I can't get enough of the Bible. I want to discover everything that was said about him. 
I, I want to know what's in his book. Now that I know him, I want to know what he said and what people have said about him. You see how that worked? When Christ came, he gave him this desire. He gave him uh, uh, his help. Until Christ comes into our lives, all of our effort is for naught. The church's strength has always been tied to the power of its Lord. And if we are not availing ourselves of that power, we are a weak church. We can be like the priests of Baal. Remember their contest with Elijah on Mount Carmel? We can be like the priest of Baal and pile our wood high on our altars. We can run around in circles all day and half the night. We can make strange sounds. We can run and jump. But if the fire doesn't come down from heaven, nothing really significant is going to happen. If the promise of John the Baptist has not been fulfilled, then we're just living under the baptizer's religion. He said, I'm baptizing you with water, but there comes one after me who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is infinitely more important than the baptism of water. Now, what about our strength? I remember Dennis Edding telling a story, a young man who went into the ministry out of this church. Dennis told how he and a friend were playing one bitterly cold winter's day in his friend's house next door to where Dennis lived. He said they'd, they'd gotten over there, they thought the warmest place in the house, they were down on the floor playing and just freezing to death. And... Uh, Dennis's friend turned to his father and said, Daddy, we need more outlets in this room. And the father said, We don't need more outlets, son. We need a bigger fire in the furnace. We don't need more machinery. We don't need more organization. We have enough people to turn Houston, Texas and the world upside down. We just need more fire in the furnace. How long does it take us to realize that? That we, we can't do it on our own. I don't think we intentionally come to that position. I think it just somehow happens and, and we find ourselves running on our own strength. I told you about Maddie and Pinky, two uh, sisters in their 70s when I met them. Well, maybe late 60s. Back in those days, I thought everybody over 35 was old. Uh, maybe in their late 60s. We, uh, they'd never learned to read and write. They'd lived on the edge of that swamp in South Georgia. And, and when I found them, they were unchurched and unread, and I, I used to take my Bible and go over and read to them. And uh, we'd pray together and sit around that stove on a winter's evening. I told you how they'd, they'd walk to church down the railroad track. And I remember one Sunday night having a full house in that little church. And I preached one of those sermons that 
it just never got off the ground. And anybody preaches long enough has some of those sermons. I mean, the runway is just not long enough. You, you flap your wings, but you run out of runway before you get off the ground. And I, I, I had one of those sermons. I, I had one in spades. I mean, it was awful. And if I could have found a button to have opened a trap door uh, and, and just let me fall down and crawl out from beneath the church, I would have loved it. Because the hardest thing for me was going to have to be to shake hands with those people and listen to them struggle for something nice to say about my sermon. But just, just before I had the benediction, I had, an, I had an unusual thought. Maybe I needed to open the doors of the church that night. When my sermon had not come out at all like I wanted to say it, and I should open the doors of the church. And I did. And those two sisters came. And some more came. And something broke out that night. And in that single service, we had a 20% increase in our membership. Wasn't a lot for us. It was a lot for them. And we prayed that night. And we cried. And we hugged. And it was one of the most memorable services of my life. And before I finished preaching, I'd already forgotten everything I'd said. I understand what Paul meant. And he doesn't come with clever words. And he doesn't come searching for eloquence. He comes, hopefully, in the power of the Holy Spirit... And this preacher knows it isn't anything I'm going to say that's going to make you yield your life to Christ that he might live in you. My only appeal is that, that you respond to that, to that gentle spirit working in your heart right now, seeking your permission to prevail in your life that he might give you the gift of life. That's the role of the preacher. Well, maybe they just felt unworthy about their work. After all, Westcott has called uh, this verse, is the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Westcott has called that the charter of the church. I mean, that's Ephesians 1. That's that lofty chapter that talks about the church as being the body of Christ. And that's the one that talks about us as somehow incarnating Christ to the whole world. And who would feel sufficient for that? But isn't it wonderful that they didn't feel sufficient? Because... The rivers run through the valleys, my friends, not on top of the mountains. They go through the valleys. And we Christians understand the paradox that uh, when we are, are, are weak, then we're strong. The world can't understand that paradox. The world sneers at that paradox. But every initiated Christian understands it. We know that when we're weak, we're strong. And when our... Pro when our our emphasis, our confidence is well-placed, that is, in Jesus Christ. He makes us as bold as a lion. 
Isn't it unfortunate in, in a way, but not really? What Kierkegaard said. He said, we understand life backward, but we have to live forward. We understand life only as we look back, but we have to live forward. We look back and we know that, that life is good for us when we felt close to God. When we were giving ourselves to God daily, that's when things were going right for us. And, and we ask, why can't I do that all the time? Why can't I go on and yield myself to this indwelling Christ? And it's unexplainable. Until the Bible says it's impossible for flesh to submit to God. It's impossible for the natural person to submit to God. That requires the work of the Spirit too. So Wesley was right. Everything is grace. We have to call on, on His Spirit to bring us to the point of submitting to His Spirit because within ourselves we cannot yield. But you know, I suspect they just felt unworthy as persons. They needed the indwelling Christ because they had made a mess of things. Paralyzed by their fears, they were hiding. Humbled by their failures, sick of their self-hatred, they huddled there like frightened animals. And it's tough to be strong when you've settled for your weakness. And it's tough to talk about victory when you've made peace with your defeats. And they had been crippled and they had been defeated and they had failed in every conceivable way. But I want you to remember, Jesus came to them. Jesus found them. They didn't find Jesus. Jesus found them. He came through those closed doors, offered them his peace, showed them his wounds, his hands and his side, and offered them his peace once more. Most importantly, he offered them himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what he did? He gave them the hope to get up from there and go on. Moltmann has said, hope is stronger than memory, and I believe that. I don't care what memory crushes you down of past failures, griefs, whatever way you've messed up your life. I believe that Christian hope, when Christ comes and calls you and shows you his wounds and offers you his peace and says, come on, I have something for you to do. I believe you can get up and go on in his strength. He gives you a future. But you can't be passive. The scripture says he breathed on them the Holy Spirit and said, 
receive the Holy Spirit. Another translation says, take ye the Holy Spirit. In other words, he doesn't pour from the fountain into a bowl turned upside down. We must ask, seek, and knock. And in the asking, we open ourselves to God's Spirit. I remember the story of that old prayer warrior. They called him Pray and Hide. Did you ever read any of his stories? Way back at the turn of the century, he was taking a, a boat across the Atlantic back in the days of the sailing vessel. And right in the middle of the crossing, they, they came to one of those unexplainable calms, just, just sat there for days. And finally, the captain, who was not a Christian, went to praying hide, knowing about his great reputation as a prayer. And he said, I, I want you to pray that the, the Lord will send a wind. And he said it in a sneering fashion, a mocking fashion. And a little bit later, Hyde went up onto the captain's bridge. And the captain was up there. And, and the captain says, what are you doing? Uh, you think you can pray if you can get a better view? Do you think you can pray better from up here? And pray and Hyde said, no, I just wanted to come up here to see if you had raised your sails to catch the wind. Remember that little verse we used to play games with our children and before that our parents played games with us? Open your hand and close your eyes and I will give you a nice surprise. Now I, I got some tricks played on me by my schoolmates and my friends. I didn't trust them with that. It's hard not to peek. But I'll tell you, every time I did that with my parents, they filled my heart with joy. Open your hand. Open it. And I'll give you a nice surprise. Now, what is your vision of Christ anyway? Is he just a relentless, hard, unforgiving, condemning God who says you've had your chances and you blew it. It's over for you. Is that the way you see him? That's kind of the way George Allen saw it for one of his place kickers. Before George Allen came to Washington, this place kicker, they tell me, had led the NFL in field goals and extra points. And they were in a playoff game. They were playing Dallas, and, and they were in the closing minutes of that game, and, and Washington got the ball down uh, close enough for a field goal. But, but Coach Allen didn't call for a field goal. He, he didn't have any confidence in his kicker. He didn't call for a field goal. He, he tried to run a play, and it backfired on him, and and, and, and Dallas got the ball, and they finally won the ball game. And afterward, the press asked Coach Allen, why didn't you try the field goal that would have tied the game, would have given you a chance to win it? He said about his kicker, I just didn't believe he could make it. Now, if you're waiting around for your God and your Savior, 
say that about you. He's never going to say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the next verse is just as important. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He comes to us not with a warrant, but with a pardon. Would you yield yourself to that indwelling Christ this morning? Let us sing the first, second, and last stanzas of our hymn of commitment. couple uniting with our church this morning and Stan is getting our information and we'll present. Dr. Henson, we are pleased to introduce Lawrence and Vanita Lewis who come to us by transfer of letter. Lawrence and Vanita, we're pleased to welcome you into our church. In just a moment, some of our Barnabas people will be here to uh, stand with you and to help uh, uh, initiate you more properly 
and fully into the life of this church. I'm going to ask you now if you uh, will once more accept Christ as your personal Savior, if you will yield your life to Him, and if you will support the church with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service. And if you will, say, I will. And I am pleased to welcome you into this fellowship. Let us leave this place in the power of our love for Christ to serve in His name. Amen. Amen.